This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 3rd, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, I talk with contributing correspondent Kai Kupferschmidt about the role of modeling in the response to coronavirus and a new large-scale trial of drugs that might hold promise in fighting the disease. Then we have researcher Nadine Gagola. She and her colleagues were able to detect the emotional state of mice based on their facial expressions using machine learning. First up today, we're going to check in with contributing correspondent Kai Kupferschmidt. He's been reporting on coronavirus for months. And just a note, we're recording this on Friday, March 27th. Hi, Kai. Hey, Sarah. You wrote a story this week with international news editor Martin Enserink about the importance of modeling as the coronavirus sweeps around the globe. Why did you focus on forecasting disease spread? Forecasts or models have always played a role in, in a lot of the outbreaks that I've written about. But I mm -hmm. think in this particular outbreak, they have been more important than they ever have been. And, and the reason is fairly simple. A lot of the outbreaks that we've had in the past have been with pathogens that we know a little bit about that have been around for decades sometimes. Sometimes we have vaccines or we have drugs against them. With COVID-19 or with SARS-CoV-2, we don't have anything. We don't have any pharmaceutical interventions, basically. So what we're seeing at the moment is the whole world trying to apply non-pharmaceutical interventions, which is lockdowns, uh, social distancing or physical distancing, as we should probably call it, the hand-washing hygiene. And the models become extremely important if you want to understand which of these measures are going to be most likely to have a big effect and when you need to implement them and how. Government policy in most countries has been shaped immensely by the models that, that researchers have come up with. And I think that makes these models extremely important and it puts a lot of pressure on the people doing these models. It's a huge responsibility. This isn't cutting edge science per se. The models aren't new. The math isn't tricky. But getting the key variables can be really problematic. What important facts do we have and, and what are we missing when we build these models? Well, it depends a little bit on what question you want to answer. We have more or less nailed down some of the basic parameters of this virus. So how many people does every infected person infect? How long does it take for an infection 
to run its course. But at the same time, of course, there's stuff that we don't know. For instance, how many people have asymptomatic infections? That has been right. from the start a huge question. We will only be able to answer that once we do big surveys with serology. So looking for antibodies in people, trying to understand how many people might have had an infection but never were diagnosed as cases. So there are some some of these questions. But then, of course, if you're really modeling, should you close schools or mm. should you advise a lockdown? Other things become immensely important as well. For instance, stuff like how many people are actually going to adhere to this advice? How long does it take for people to do this? The characteristics of the population. Yeah, exactly. And And, and just very basic things like... How do people live together? Like if people stay in their households, what do households look like? What contacts do households have? And then where do most of the contacts happen outside of households? What kind of contact is actually the contact that spreads the disease? All of these things do go into these models. And so there is a huge uncertainty in these models. And I think one of the problems that both we as journalists have, but also politicians have, is that when you read just the conclusions of a model, it can suggest a lot more certainty than there is. I mean, this is still you know, a fairly new disease that we don't know a lot about. And there's a lot of other factors that are just as uncertain when you're modeling the spread. Are there different models being used by different countries or different regions? Are these differences a problem? You know, I, I don't think the difference is so much what kind of model you're on. Actually, most models are fairly consistent, I think. I think mm -hmm. the question is, what do you use the models for? What do you want to maximize? There was this idea to try and find a middle way. You know, at the moment, we have this dilemma between if you let this virus spread, it is going to cause disease and death on a scale that's just terrible. On the other hand, it seems that what China did might curb the spread of the virus. I mean, it has done in China. But if you do that, you're basically locking down your population for who knows how many months and tanking the economy while you're doing it and causing a lot of you know, knock-on effects also in terms of mental health and other things. So both of those options seem kind of terrible. And so some of the modelers were trying to find a middle ground. You know, is there a way to lower how much the virus spreads, you know, make sure that it only spreads in that part of the population that mm. is less susceptible to it, where it causes less severe disease? And the Netherlands and the UK have kind of been the two examples where actually the, the heads of state have gone out and said, we are not trying to completely suppress this virus. We're not trying to get cases down to zero. We think the better option is to let it spread a little bit and make sure that it doesn't spread so much that it overwhelms our capacity of the hospitals to, to deal with cases. What, what about if a drug came out or a vaccine and people had died because they were part of a plan to expose the country slowly? You know, that would be terrible. There'd be a lot of life lost. And, you know, is this something that can be accounted for in models, use of a vaccine or discovery of a useful drug? No, exactly. There's, there are some things that just won't be in the models. Like if we do find a drug treatment that kind of reduces the risk of dying or when a vaccine becomes available, that can change the things. I mean, a vaccine will probably become available too late to really matter in the next year. But certainly there might be drugs that we can find, like available drugs that can be repurposed, that might lower the risk of dying from this, that might lower the strain on hospitals. And it depends a little bit on how likely you think that is, how much you're willing to risk at this point. And the other thing I just want to point out, I mean, if you do this, you can model a lot and you can chart a very narrow path to an outcome that you want. But when you're doing this in a landscape of so much uncertainty, it's just an extremely risky 
proposition to say, okay, you know, we have one model here that says if we do exactly these things and if all goes according to plan, then we might be able to avoid catastrophe. And I think that's where you've seen kind of a lot of pushback from other scientists. And both the UK and, and to a certain extent, the Netherlands seem to have come closer to the approach that other European countries are, are, are using. Right, which is to try to contain the virus as much as possible for as long as possible. Exactly. Let's turn to the possibility of a drug treatment for this outbreak. So you wrote this week with John Cohen, another of our reporters who's been covering coronavirus wall to wall, like you, uh, a story on the World Health Organization launching a global trial of drugs that might be effective against COVID-19. And it's actually four drugs And their intention is to involve hospitals that are actively treating patients and testing these drugs. Is this something that's been started already? Hopefully by the time the podcast comes out, it will have started. At the moment, they're gearing up. The hope was that they would have the first patients this week. I haven't checked in with them today, but they might well announce it in the press conference today. So it's pretty unprecedented. I mean, we're in the middle of this global pandemic and we don't have any drugs. And because it takes too long to develop new drugs, probably they're just really looking at all the drugs that are available already that might be repurposed, that might have some effect on COVID-19. What drugs are they looking at and how are they chosen? The WHO has a a panel of experts that have been looking at drugs that possibly could treat this uh, since January. And they kind of came up with this priority list. And originally on that priority list, there was remdesivir which is an antiviral drug that was originally developed to treat Ebola and similar viruses. It actually failed to do anything in Ebola. It was tested in the DRC during the current Ebola outbreak, and it didn't have any effect. But there is some data from animal studies and from cell culture studies that suggest it might have an effect against SARS-CoV-2. So that's kind of top of the list. And some patients in the U.S. have been treated with it. The first patient in Snohomish County in Washington state was treated with it. And there's a paper in NEJM that describes how he basically got better after a day. Of course, that's not evidence that this drug is working, but people certainly have more hope that this might have an effect than on some of the other drugs. Mm -hmm. The second one on the list is an old combination drug against HIV called Caletra. So that's two substances, ritonavir and lopinavir. The idea there is that this combination drug actually acts against a protein of HIV that the virus needs to to produce its proteins. It might have the same effect in SARS-CoV-2. We don't really know. There's one study that was done in China where 199 people were treated either with this combination drug or just with standard of care. And they didn't actually find a significant difference in outcome. But one of the problems that we have with all of these drugs, of course, is the sickest patients are getting these drugs because the hospitals are overwhelmed and they're mostly treating the really sick patients. But of course, it might already be too late to have a really good effect of these drugs when you give them that late in the disease. Let's talk about the other two drugs being tested and then we'll talk about how this could possibly happen while hospitals are, while hospitals are full. Okay, so uh, number three. Right. So number three is basically the same two drugs, ritonavir, lopinavir, the HIV drugs, plus interferon beta, which is a basically a signaling molecule that the human body uses to fight viruses. And the idea there is that maybe if you combine these things, it might have a, a stronger effect against SARS-CoV-2. And then we have the famous, now famous or infamous, whatever you want to call it, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. So that's a malaria drug that has been used for decades in malaria. And 
That drug is interesting because it wasn't originally supposed to be included in the trial, but then there was a lot of data from different places arguing that this could have an effect. There's a small trial that was done in France. It's really small. It was 20 patients. It wasn't randomized. It wasn't controlled. But of course, Donald Trump also kind of highlighted this drug in one of his press conferences. So it's just become a topic. And I think to a certain extent, actually, the WHO felt the need to put this to rest once and for all. Right. Just either rule see it in whether or rule effect. it out. Exactly. So there's two different drugs here, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, very closely related, slightly different. So some countries will test hydroxychloroquine, others might test chloroquine, but basically both of these are included in the WHO trial. Hmm. And how is this going to work? How are these drugs going to be administered to these patients that are flooding into hospitals? When a patient comes to the hospital with COVID-19, the physician who's going to treat him will just take the basic history, like underlying illnesses, for instance. And then he will tell a computer program which drugs he has currently available in the hospital. And then the computer system will randomize the patient to one of the available drugs or to standard care. And of course, the patient has to sign a consent form that's scanned and, and sent to the WHO. For the moment, that's it. The only other thing that will be recorded is the day that the patient either dies or leaves the hospital. So length of stay in the hospital, whether the patient was ventilated or not, and whether he died or not. That's all the data that's gathered. Not whether or not the virus is cleared. It's just very simple. Is this person better in a shorter time? Exactly. And I mean, these are the hard outcomes. It's also difficult to know with some of the other measurements that you might be able to do to know what they really mean. I mean, for instance, you can check virus in the throat and maybe that goes down, but it might also go down because the virus has moved down into the lungs and it's actually a sign of the disease worsening. So it kind of makes sense at this stage to just keep to the, to the hard outcomes. Mm -hmm. This is a global approach. How many patients around the world are they hoping to recruit and, and how long will they be running these trials? This is basically open-ended. So they hope to include thousands of patients and there is a data safety monitoring board that is going to look at the data fairly continuously, I imagine. And as soon as there's a signal that one of the drugs clearly doesn't do anything or clearly does do something, they could change the trial, either drop the drug or include another one or start using a drug that has proved its worth on more patients. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Kai, let's talk a little bit about the future. What are you going to be focusing on in the coming weeks? What do you think are important scientific trends to follow in this pandemic? The drugs that the WHO is trialing are really all drugs that attack the virus. Yeah. There's other drugs that might be really important that do not attack the virus, but rather interact with molecules in the human body. So for instance, you could block the receptor that the virus attaches to on human cells. Mm -hmm. You could block other parts kind of of the inflammation pathways because a lot of the disease really in the end stage, so acute respiratory distress syndrome is really mediated by the immune system. So dampening down the immune system might be one way of dealing mm -hmm. with that. So those trials are also going to be started. And then you have the, the convalescent serum. So this idea that if you give the blood from people who have recovered from COVID-19 to people who are experiencing the illness, that the antibodies in that blood might help them. Yeah, That's already started and they used it in China to a certain extent. They're starting it in the US. And I think we'll see a lot more of that happening as well. And of course, that as well will be done in 
in the scope of trials to be able to say whether it has an effect or not. That's the treatment side, yeah. Exactly, that's the treatments. And then, of course, there's a race on to develop the vaccines. There's dozens and dozens of candidates. The last number I heard was between 50 and 60. Wow. It's. I mean, and this is good, right? I mean, you really want a lot of shots on target and some of these might fail, others might just take a long time. So it does make sense to have a lot of candidates. And I think one of the things that we will be focusing on a little bit in the coming weeks is how regulatory authorities and scientists try to strike this balance between having really rigorous tests that this vaccine works and is effective and safe, while also trying to get it to human trials really quickly. All right, Kai, thank you so much. Sarah, thanks. Kai Kuferschmidt is a contributing correspondent based in Berlin. You can find a link to his stories and all of our coverage of coronavirus at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with researcher Nadine Kagola about using machine learning to track the emotional states of mice. I've, this week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. I've been feeling pretty emotional these days. Staying home all the time with a five-year-old, worrying about basically all the people in the world, it, it can get pretty intense. But now let's talk about it from a scientific perspective. What do we know about our emotions? What are these things that we feel and can they be understood by science? Nadine Gogola and colleagues wrote a paper this week on the link between emotions and facial expressions in mice and how getting a handle on emotions in a model organism might give us traction on big questions about emotions. Hi, Nadine. Hello, Sarah. Let's dive right into the controversy. Emotions, what are they and why doesn't everyone agree? So there is controversy in part because very different scientific disciplines uh, study emotions, such as psychologists, uh, neuroscientists or philosophists, and they obviously all have very different approaches. Psychologists and philosophists usually come from the side of conscious experience in humans exclusively. And then neuroscientists usually take a much more brain basis and behavioral perspective on things. And this wouldn't exclude animals from those definitions. You're an effective neuroscientist. So your field, how does your field view emotions? So I think we would define emotions as brain states that give rise to specific patterns of behavioral responses, but also hormonal changes and bodily reactions. Even if you come up with some pretty solid mechanisms connecting facial expressions, brain states, the physiology of the animal and emotion, how can you then take all of that and go to a psychologist or a philosopher and say, see, 
I found emotions? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I believe that maybe we can just try first to find the common findings. So if we don't talk about mm -hmm. the conscious experience of an emotion, we can still measure as much in humans as we can in animals, uh, measure their hormonal changes, their behavioral changes, their facial expressions, uh, possibly. So there are commonalities which we can assess in both. And most importantly, we can look at the brain and the brain there are, is a whole discipline who compares brains of different species, and we can actually uh, know that there are homologous uh, brain regions which do actually play a role as much in humans as in animals, roles in emotion regulation, emotional behavior, and so on. So I think we can take it from the behavioral bodily perspective where there are commonalities, but even from the brain perspective, there are commonalities. Do we know that animals have emotions? I guess we do know that there are some very conserved regions of the brain that in humans, as much as in animals, trigger typical responses such as fear responses, flight or freezing. They also cause then bodily responses such as increase in heart rate, increase in breathing. And I think this conserved sets of actions, action mm -hmm. patterns that actually make us feel comfortable to say that actually animals also do have emotions. Mm -hmm. And what about facial expressions? I never thought about mice making faces, but looking at the diagrams in your paper, it's pretty clear, you know, they move their ears, their eyes shapes are different, other parts of their faces shift around. Can you, as an expert here, detect mouse facial expressions? Like if you're looking at a mouse... I think that every one of us, even somebody who hasn't particularly looked at many mice in his uh, life, would see that if you trigger strong emotion states, uh, let's say, would see that something happens. We have actually done this at the science outreach and people were very good in saying something has happened. Yeah. But they weren't very good in saying what has happened. So they know there's been a change, but they can't describe it and they wouldn't be able to say oh, there's a picture of a mouse. I know what that mouse is feeling exactly. or what it's reacting to. There were some surprising findings where people were better than just saying by chance whether something good or bad had happened, <laughs> but they couldn't figure out what was real underlying emotion. So in this paper, you actually use machine learning to capture the facial expressions of mice reacting to different stimuli, like a sweet drink or a bitter taste. Is this why you use machine learning instead of human eyeballs? Because people could detect a change, but they couldn't kind of nail down how the change had happened or what was different? Yeah, there were several reasons that made us try machine learning. One is that it gives us a very objective and also quantitative way of assessing image information and trying to really measure it in numbers. And the second advantage of this then turned out to be that it is very quick and very precise. So we can actually now use the measurements we get from the machine learning to compare it to activity of neurons in the brain, which happen at timescales that no human could classify mm -hmm. what he or she sees. How can you show that these, what you're calling emotional responses, are different than something that's just like a reflex, like drawing your, your hand back from something hot? Yes. So this was really the key turning point for me, where I started to believe that we are looking at something more broad than just, as you just said, a sensory reflex. 
And that was that we went to the literature and what people have come up with as a consensus on what emotions really are. And that is that there are quite a complex compound product of integration of very many different things, such as how is my bodily state right now? Mm -hmm. So you may appreciate that when I'm thirsty, a drop of water will be very pleasurable while it will do nothing to me when I'm not thirsty. And the sight of something threatening may be very different if I'm already in a startled state or I'm in a very peaceful environment, such as at home on my sofa. So we really try to understand, do our facial expressions vary in intensity when we give different concentrations, for instance, of different sensory stimuli, but do they also generalize? So you see the same response if a mouse gets a little bit of sugar or it gets water when it's thirsty. So those are both classes pleasurable, whereas if it gets water and it's not thirsty, you're not going to see that same response. Exactly. And on top of that, we can even go into brain regions that we know are, for instance, reactive to substances of abuse, which make people feel very good in the very instant of taking those drugs. If we activate those brain regions, we also see pleasurable facial expressions on the mouse's face, very similar to the drinking of sucrose solution or water. Hmm. Is that mostly what you were looking at when you were examining brain activity in this experiment? What else were you trying to find out when you were looking at the brain? Yeah, so one thing was really to generalize the occurrence of facial expressions, not only to outside sensory stimuli, but to really link them to brain states to say, okay, if the brain has a certain activity pattern that we believe based on the literature and the existing literature should give rise to an emotion, do we also see a facial expression? That was one way. The other way was to say, okay, now that we do have a readout of emotional experiences, can we go into the brain and look at the activity of neurons and find back correlates of these emotional experiences in brain regions that we know should play a role. Yeah. When you break it down into these, like, this is what the brain is doing, this is what the face is doing, this is what happens when we simulate the brain to the face, it all makes sense. But then this is still a mouse. What if you talk about people now? I mean, we have control over our faces. We suppress emotions. We, you know, might make a different face depending on, you know, what our previous experience has been or our culture. How do we move this from animals to people? That is right. Uh, <laughs> I think that I do actually think that we may actually see something like this even in mice. Yeah. In our experiments, we really put the animals by themselves into the dark room and they did not suspect anybody watching them. <laughs> they didn't know there was a camera. And we're actually very interested in trying to see whether also animals as simple as mice can hide their emotions from others when they believe it's advantageous to them. Yeah. But we do also believe that maybe the other way around also works, that namely, if you look at very sudden changes in uh, human facial expression, it has been described that there are so-called micro expressions, which really last only very, very short moments in time, which we cannot control. They seem to be more reliable than the more long-standing smile on a face, which we can definitely suppress. Mm -hmm. Can you look for things like sweaty palms or dilating pupils in mice? What we also would like to do in the future, at least in my lab, is to enrich the repertoire of readouts of emotions and trying to maybe also take bodily responses into the algorithms, such as 
maybe the heart rate, the breathing, the body posture. And I think that in humans in general, yes, we do have some control over certain things that we are aware are observed, but maybe we do not have voluntary control over, over our heart rate, over our sweating, over our pupil dilation. And so if we just combine many of those, I think in the future, we can really move towards a more comprehensive um, description of emotion state. Mm -hmm. Is that the goal here to better understand what an emotion is in the body? I think for me, the goal would be really trying to find a definition of emotion through its correlates in the brain. So we can now, using this simple readout of the facial expression, go into the brain and try to understand, are there common circuits or brain regions that give rise to certain building blocks of emotion, such as is there brain regions which just ascribe the valence, such as this is good or bad, or which ascribes the generalization. So you may see something good and smell something good and taste something good, and they may all come into the brain through different routes, but then there may be a nucleus where all of this is in some sense digested, put together, and then giving rise to the general sensation or experience of pleasure. What about, you know, disorders where people's emotional responses aren't working? Yes, I think that most psychiatric diseases actually come with a component of emotional disruption. Some of the most prevalent psychiatric diseases, anxiety and depression, they definitely are disorders of emotions, hmm. but also other diseases and maybe even just bodily diseases come with an emotional burden, right? You're becoming afraid of what's happening to you. You cannot predict well what's going to happen with you. And so understanding where emotions come from, how you can control them, what they actually do with you, I think is very fundamental desire of every human being. So I should ask you how you're feeling right now. <laughs> I'm, feeling, uh, I'm feeling very excited about this new avenue that we think now and hope that many people around the globe will use and that we can really get a more objective and measurable and maybe also more diverse handle on the emotional experience of people because I really think then that in the future this may have translational value for treating disruptions of emotional regulation, emotional experience and so on. Mm -hmm. All right, Nadine, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Nadine Gagola is research group leader at the Max Planck Institute of Neurobiology in Germany. You can find a link to her paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe to the podcast on Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, and many other places. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.